Judging by newspaper headlines, financial crime is on the rise. Embezzlement, fraud, cybercrime, money laundering, market abuse, bribery and corruption and breach of sanctions. The list goes on. Many of these cases may not end up in criminal court, but the administrative sanctions and fines handed out by regulators can still be significant. Add this to the reputational and commercial damage and some companies can be fatally wounded. What can companies do better to prevent and protect themselves and what actions should they take when suspicions or evidence of a crime have been discovered? Today we will be speaking with AML, CFT and forensic investigations specialists as well as a criminal lawyer to get their shared insights. So who do we have with us today? On my left-hand side, we have Sandrine Pariot. Sandrine, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Sandrine is a partner at Arendt Regulatory and Consulting, uh, following 25 years working at the Big Four, where she was also a partner in charge of the forensic and AML services, developing an in-depth expertise in the regulatory framework for the fight against money laundering and terrorist financing. Now, sitting opposite Sandrine, I've got Stephanie. Stephanie, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Stephanie Lom is the Head of Forensic Investigations, Corporate Intelligence and Litigation Support for Arendt Regulatory and Consulting. Her 25-year international career, uh, literally all over the world, and she's a recognised expert in fraud and corruption investigations, including worldwide asset searches, AML investigations, and anti-bribery and corruption reviews. And sitting on her right-hand side, we've got Mr. Jean-Luc Putz. Jean-Luc, good afternoon. Hi, Jim. Now, Jean-Luc has been centre stage in making judgments on Luxembourg legal matters since 2007 in his role as magistrate and consequently judge. As a partner for Arendt, he specialises in criminal law with a focus on cybercrime as well as white-collar crime. Now he's on the other side of the bench helping firms prevent, prepare and solve financial and corporate crime together with money laundering and corruption. Now, with my panel of experts, what I've got for you is I've got two a very, very intriguing case studies, which is which are going to test your knowledge about financial crime and what we can do about it. Case study number one is this. An alternative investment fund has recently acquired a real estate property. Following the acquisition, still within the reps and warranties provision, the new owner identifies there had been some accounting misstatements and suspects that some key contracts were obtained by paying bribes. All of this clearly impacting the basis on which the valuation of the property was made and thus the purchase price. A board member of the fund decides to call his lawyer, who in this case is Jean-Luc. Now, Jean-Luc, has a crime been committed? Thank you, but I think you already gave the answer in your question because, of course, there are offences that have been committed here related to the balance sheets and to the bribes that have been paid. You spoke about the purchase price, which is, of course, an important question, but that's civil or commercial law. We are trying to focus here on the criminal aspects, and indeed there is a criminal risk in this case. Well, what you didn't tell me is where did all this happen, because you have to know that despite the large harmonization of criminal law in, on European and international level, it remains a national law. So I suppose that everything happened just next door, that means here in the Grand Duchy. Correct. Let's assume that. Okay. So then uh, for the company accounts, we will have to look into the 1915 law on commercial companies. And this says that false balances are pu uh, punishable. However, there must be a fraudulent intent. Simple error or negligence will not be punishable here. 
And it's very difficult to assess this in practice because a judge cannot look into the brain of the people, so he has to state on a case-by-case basis and look at the context to decide if there is a fraudulent intent or not. If so, then a crime has indeed been committed here. And when I say a crime, I mean technically speaking a crime because in Luxembourg we make a difference between crimes and what we call délit. Crimes are the most serious categories of uh, offences in our law, such as murder, for example. Now, what about bribes? Uh, is that a corruption offence? Bribes would uh, paying bribes is of course a corruption uh, offence, especially of course if it happened here in Luxembourg. But uh, here it depends uh, on whom these bribes have paid to, because the law makes a difference between public corruption and private corruption. And here we have the problem that I don't have the details. You didn't give me the details to answer, so I tell you it depends, and maybe somebody else has to look into the file. Stephanie. Yeah, so in a case like this, it is extremely important to get the forensic investigators in very quickly, and for two main reasons. Obvious reason is to answer um, the questions for which Jean-Luc doesn't yet have uh, responses. And the first reason is to identify the data and preserve the data and collect the data in a forensic way, meaning to ensure that this data haven't been tampered with, that if that nobody uh, modified the data or destroyed the data. And that is what the term forensic in forensic investigations means. And what we do as forensic investigators is going to help the potential criminal case by explaining if you know, bribery has been paid to whom um, and help the lawyer define the offense. But it's going to also help in the civil and commercial matter here because if there was accounting misstatement and then a false valuation price and then a too high purchase price paid by the acquirer, then also on the civil and commercial case, the acquirer will be able uh, to get into a litigation to get some of the money back. Now, if we're talking about collecting data, we live in a digital world. Are you telling me that you have to go and search through hundreds of Excel sheets? Absolutely. It's going to be Excel sheets. It's going to be accounting and financial records, but it's going to be also communications, email communications, communications through chats. And we have very specific tools um, that our experts know how to use and how to use in a forensic way. And of course, all the data that is being collected and reviewed, it is done under and in compliance with the laws in regards to data protection and data privacy. Now, Jean-Luc, let's go back to the criminal aspect about this. Who are we actually talking about in this instance of committing a crime? Well, your question is who will be liable in the end, who will go to jail? So here the answer from criminal law is quite simple. It's those who committed the crime. Because what is criminal law there for? Its purpose is to dissuade people from committing offences, so the punishment must be applied in practice to those who have broken the law. The good news here for the alternative investment fund is that the events did not take place within this company. So the people responsible here, we have to search them in the real estate company. It can be the directors, it could be the financial manager, it could be the salespeople who negotiated the contracts and paid the bribes. It could also be external people such as, for example, an independent accountant. It depends on the case and it will be up to the public prosecutor to decide who he will in the end prosecute. So, so you're actually what you're saying is the fund can is not liable at all. It is liable, but not for the offences that have been committed here, uh, for the briberies and for the misstatements in the accounts. But there are other questions of liability that we will discuss later. Okay, so 
you, you've clarified that it's actually it's the real estate company that is the ones that were it's really in the crosshairs of of committing a, a crime. Um, but from a fund perspective, what what should they be worried about? Well, the question you ask is, are they responsible for the main crimes that have co been committed here? My answer would be no, because it's a simple investment. You're purchasing shares of these companies and the investor will not be liable of what happened before. It could be different if we would be in the case of a merger between two companies, but that would be a different case. The main liability here comes from AML uh, issues. What would the investment fund what should it have done beforehand before buying this company? Did it do sufficient checks and so on? But maybe I hand over these questions to a specialist. Sandrine, what do you think about this? Um, my response would be simple. In fact, the, the investment fund is a regulated entity and as such subject to the IMLCFT leg legislation and law. So it has the obligation to apply customer uh, due diligence measures when establishing a business relationship with any counterparty or when also carrying out a transaction. So you may ask, but what does it mean concretely? So uh, it means that the investment fund, in fact, has to know, um, has to perform, I would say, um, has to obtain a good understanding of the real estate transaction and, and also the role played among the various parties linked to that transaction to be in a position to properly assess the level of money laundering, terrorism finance risk that is assigned to that transaction and also defined the right due diligence measures to apply. So it means that to do that, um, the, the fund has to implement a risk-based approach, which is something that is also uh, defined and determined by the law, and taken into consideration various risk factors such as customer risk, counterparty risk, transactional risk, or geographical risk. And this requires as well that the fund has to determine a number of questions to be asked uh, prior to the transaction uh, as occurred, such as, first of all, who, who are my counterparties? Who is the buyer? Who is the seller? Um, are we talking about an individual, a legal person? Uh, is it part of the complex structure? Who is the ultimate beneficial owner? And considering that the beneficial owner is always a natural person, is there any reputational risk associated to, to that person? And the customer risk also includes as well purchase involving high-ranking officials or their families, for instance, who would require more attention as they would qualify as politically exposed person than presenting a risk of corruption, if I may say, uh, or due to over any specific over type of provision. So, um, and, and it's not easy to, frankly speaking, identify the real, the real purchaser because sometimes you, you may be in presence of a complex structure uh, where it's not easy to identify the owner's identity, if I may say. So uh, you may as well need to have a clear understanding where the source of funds uh, are coming from, the source of wealth of the buyer. Is there any intermediary uh, that would facilitate the transactions? Could be also a financial institution that could be part uh, of, the, of the transactions uh, and offering loan scheme. Are there any 
investors or co-investors that would acquire the um, the the property with with the investment fund. So um, the type of property should also be assessed. Are we talking about an hotel, an office, a warehouse, a business park, for instance? Um, where is this property located? So all these aspects uh, at the end of the day need to be addressed and answered. Um, and I mean, that's a huge yeah. amount of data, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Mm. I mean, um, Stephanie, from your perspective, uh, Sandrine just mentioned there that the investment fund is probably going to say that they had a, a risk policy uh, in place, but they, they missed it. Someone's got to somehow discover who knew what. Would that come within your role? Yeah, absolutely. It's the whole purpose of the forensic investigations. It's to try to understand and to retrace the timeline of the events. What has happened? What decision was made on the basis of what information? Who had the information? Who asked for information? And that's the whole definition of due diligence. It's that you need to be diligent in the transactions, whether it's an investment, an acquisition, sometimes even a divestment. And one point to complement what has been said is that we all know there's more and more regulatory pressure in everything that touch uh, that touches financial crime, sanctions, money laundering, bribery, and corruption. In some jurisdictions, for example, the U.S., um, in mergers and acquisitions, the acquirer may actually be held criminally responsible uh, if he has not done sufficient anti-corruption due diligence. And don't forget that there's more and more collaboration between regulators and authorities in the globe. So in that case, it may have happened in the Grand Duché, but if there is an American nexus, for example, that can open up an investigation in other jurisdictions. And therefore, understanding everything that happened to, in the end, establish who's responsible and potentially liable is something that forensic investigation is indispensable for. Now, Jean-Luc, let's say I was on that investment fund and I sort of suspected this this firm to be a, a bit dodgy. Would that be a, a problem later? Yes, of course. Uh, but uh, what we know here is what should have done. Sandrine just listed everything that the company should have done aforehand, and we know that it didn't happen. I think if we would have done it, the deal would never have taken place. So I guess that in your case, there was no KYC at all at the very beginning. And uh, this triggers a criminal liability under the 2004 law because you should have done it. And so uh, it's a fine up to 5 million euros that can be uh, put on you. On the other hand, you should not forget, however, here that uh, it's the real estate company that is the, no, it's the investment fund that is the main victim here. So I'm not sure if it will be immediately prosecuted. I guess the public prosecution will focus on what happened in the real estate company. But there's another issue for our investment fund, and that, it's, that it knows now what happened. It knows uh, that there have been bribes that have been paid and that many contracts are not clear and should be verified, or at least as a big suspicion, and it's not longer in good faith. And the problem is now... Can it take the money that comes out of the investment it makes? And here I would say no, because if you accept that money, you know that you're accepting dirty money that comes from the proceed of a crime. And so it would be a money laundering offense. So you bought something, but you cannot take out the money out of it. And that will be the main issue here. So, Sandrine, is that really correct that uh, I've accidentally bought uh, a property that potentially is involved in money laundering, I can't take the revenue from that transaction. 
Yeah, it's it's. I'm fully aligned with uh, what Jean-Luc mentioned. In fact, yes, it's it's it it. You will be, I would say, part or facilitate a money laundering offense. And again, as we said, this probably would not have happened if the fund would have performed proper due diligence. And when we were describing or let's say uh, summarizing the questions to be asked, what is probably the most important is as well that the investment fund, based on this question, should have obtained proper KYC documentation, should have really performed a real assessment, also maybe on-site uh, visit, uh, screen the different names against bad press, uh, a pep list, a sanctioned list, uh, make some bad press search, and formalize all these assessments. Because if something wrong happened, it's only through, a, I would say, a proper formalization of the due diligence performed that you could demonstrate to a third party that you had done all the means possible and that you have mitigated at that time the risk that you may have, I would say, I identified. Mean, in, in your experience, does real estate often raise red flags? I would say, yeah, because real estate sector is naturally considered as a sector presenting more risk. Uh, and there would be clear expectations from the market that, I would say, due diligence, enhanced due diligence measures would de facto be, I would say, uh, applied uh, in order to, to mitigate the, these risks. So the reason why is simple. It's because real estate sector is an interesting and attractive sector to money launderers with prices likely to appreciate over time. It provides veil of legitimacy and normality. Again, the property might be used to generate further income as a second home or rented out for commercial purpose. And real estate transactions usually also involve large sums with prices of property that can be under-evaluated or over-evaluated. Complex loans uh, and, and mortgage schemes are often used. So they also involve non-financial and, and, and um, financial professionals that may operate under different jurisdictions subject to different IML requirements that might be less stringent. So the list is not exhaustive. Now, Stephanie, can I just be philosophical with you just for one second? Isn't it in a way, it's a bit inevitable, isn't it, financial crime like this because of the this pressure from my head of sales in order to get more, more deals? Do you think it's just inevitable? So, I mean, indeed, most of the corruption and money laundering in such cases come from the fact that there is either a very competitive situation, and we know it happens very often in private equity, when there is a lot of money and you see a very interesting target, you want to be the first one to put uh, your offer on the market, and therefore you squeeze very important diligence. So it's complacency, uh, you know, that's going to win the fight um, to in, in, a, in a competitive situation uh, before the diligence. The other thing I believe is that, um, and it's not just, you know, private equity investment firms, people have a tendency to look at risk in a very, uh, in a way that is in silo. So I'm subject to AML regulation, I'm going to take a look at AML. I'm subject to ESG pressure, I'm going to take a look at ESG or corruption or fraud. You need to have a more holistic approach and, you know, take a a step back and said, okay, what are my risks and what could be the consequences? And then challenge the information that is being given to you. I'm pretty sure some diligence have been done, questions have been asked, checklists have been sent, and then it's self-reported information. Um, you know, how did you win these contracts? Well, we knew this and this. Or offer or bid was better. 
challenge that and check the information that is being self-reported to you. And that is what enhanced due diligence are. Now, Jean-Luc, let's just talk about punishment for a second, because you mentioned that potentially people may get, for example, up to 10 years and a fine of up to €187,000. This is for the bribery uh, offence. In in Luxembourg, uh, are people actually going to prison for these kind of crimes? Yes, it happens. But I have to say that uh, mostly these uh, files take a long of time, uh, time to investigate. So often in the end, there will be no uh, fixed prison sentence. However, uh, you should know that uh, there is a raising awareness of it. And I would not exclude that in a very strong cases, you will have a prison sentence in the end and you will have to go to jail. And... Um, Sandrine, if I can come to you also the uh, about the regulatory aspects of of this, um, because does it make a big difference uh, in this case that it was an alternative investment fund? Therefore, it's a regulated entity. Therefore, the CSSF is is all over this case. Is it actually more likely to stay sort of an administrative offence rather than criminal? It could be both, in fact, say, but. First of all, the, the, what would be challenged here is, is at the end of the day, the investment fund remains responsible um, of this acquisition, and it remains as well responsible to ensure that the risk of money laundering and terrorism financing linked to that transactions have been properly assessed, uh, understood, and mitigated accordingly to avoid any reputational and financial damage also by having its name associated to a money laundering case. Jean-Luc, does the court take this into into effect, perhaps, that the fund has already taken a reputational hit uh, and therefore it seems like it has already been punished and therefore it would be punished less later? Of course, the judges have a very broad appreciation of the sentence they can pronounce and in this case as i said i think the investment fund is above all a victim in this case and this will be taken into consideration in my opinion already at the level of prosecution so if we do it well maybe this case will never be prosecuted on a kysa anti-money laundering basis and especially if the investment fund reacts immediately and correctly from the moment he knows what happened, he should make a declaration of suspicion, inform the authorities, and that can help him that the authorities will not dig into the question why did the investment fund not do the due diligence before. So I think there's a good chance here. And Stephanie, perhaps closing words from you on this particular case is that for for funds that are listening now, um, they might be thinking to my to thinking to themselves, grief, I, I've got to make sure that my data is in order. Any words of advice for them? Yeah, absolutely. The the case or the bad situation we very often see is that our clients don't know where the data is. And that is very problematic because we don't know where to get them. You don't know where they are archived. And that's a big problem because we do lose a lot of time. And as Jean-Luc said, time is of the essence here. You need to react very quickly, especially to collect the data to make sure that nothing's going to be tampered with or destroyed. Come back for the second half when we will be exploring anti-money laundering and steps that banks should take. (music) 
So welcome back. Now, we will be exploring a different case study in this half of the Arendt We Live podcast, and I'm going to be referring to our AML specialist, Sandrine Perriot, who we are fictionally suggesting has been contacted by, by a bank for a remediation of its entire client portfolio and finds an issue with the client, an individual that was accepted five years ago. Uh, a large amount of cash was deposited with no information and documentation corroborating the source of the funds. Level of risk assigned to the client is medium, whereas considering the transactional activities and its geographical location, a higher risk should have been envisaged. During the review, she identified based on the transactions and the related parties that the account is linked to five other accounts opened with the bank for legal persons and individuals. These five accounts have not been identified by the bank as linked to the client under review. The account has not been subject to the review of the compliance department at the time of the onboarding. Goodness me, this is complicated. She identifies onboarding rules are both outdated and breached. It's consequently suspected that money is being laundered. Sandrine, what actions should the bank take in the short term and what advice would you give in the longer term? So the first action that the bank should take, from my point of view, is to further investigate the client file, as well as the link accounts, to have a better understanding of the initial purpose and also the intended nature of the relationship with that client, as well as the different interactions, roles with these linked accounts, which were not really obvious. And as part of this investigation, I could also advise the bank to contact Stephanie in order to better assist, uh, be better assisted in tracing the origin of the funds that have that occurred mainly in cash. Um, I would also advise the bank to reconsider the level of risk of this client, uh, because based on what we observed, the client was considered as medium risk. And and with all these red flags, if I may say, it would make sense to classify it as high risk with the application of also enhanced due diligence measure. And on top, a blocking of the account would would also be uh, recommended. That's going to make the client happy, isn't it? The client now tapi and probably the bank neither, but I think it's it's a necessary step to uh, mitigate the risk. Um, and also because based on the outcomes of the investigation or the additional analysis performed, there might still be a doubt or suspicion of money laundering. And then the bank should really consider making a declaration to the financial intelligence unit. Now, Stephanie, how would you try and trace these money flows? Yeah, so it's uh, it's quite complicated and long, but it, again, it's a, it's a very detailed forensic investigation looking into all the bank accounts that the client may have opened and then tracing the transactions, which leads us to other bank accounts in other banks and jurisdictions. Um, so you're gonna, you know, you're gonna have to rely on the collaboration of over banks and jurisdictions, and that's where we work with lawyers as well. And then trying to understand where that money came from and where the money went, to see if at some point there are suspicious origins that could be criminal origins or suspicious slash potentially criminal use of the funds. The other aspect we can help as well is on the client side, um, because very often uh, the due diligence to use publicly available information or self-reported information. And, you know, we use um, human source intelligence technique to identify the origin of wealth or the origin of funds from, uh, from the clients. Uh, but I need to I need to highlight the fact that it's um, it's usually a work um, that takes quite some time, and that means you need access to all of the bank's files, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. 
that must be difficult to, for them to agree to, correct? Well, I mean, we are there to help the bank understand what happened, uh, identified weaknesses in their onboarding processes, and that's Sonin's wor work. And, you know, the end of it is to help them remediate and decrease whatever weaknesses or gaps they might have in their uh, in their procedure. So it's, yes, they need to open up the internal records, but it's in their best interest. Now, let's just pretend for one second that during the investigation, it's discovered that the cash deposited has come from the proceeds of a criminal activity in another EU state. Uh, who in the bank could be guilty of what offence, Jean-Luc? Well, I'm quite impressed that uh, Stephanie found this out so quickly. I don't know how, how did you do it, but uh, from the perspective of a criminal lawyer, there are many legal points in common with the first case study. We're evolving in the same kind of legislation here. And again, the centre of the criminal activity is not within the bank but with one of its clients so the bank as such is not liable for the offenses that have been committed by the client but there is a criminal risk for the bank in regard of the AML legislation I think there are two points that should be stressed out here first there are the professional obligations the bank is a regulated entity we have heard they are subject to a lot of uh, obligations and even at the stage of onboarding they should have done their KYC, and we know that the procedure is outdated, so this is a criminal offence as such. And then in the specific case for the specific client you are talking here, Sandrine found out that the procedure is not only outdated, but also that it was not applied at all in this case. And this, of course, is equally a criminal offence, because the bank should have known uh, who... Uh, is his client, who is the beneficial owner of it, and where does the money come from? I wasn't in the bank this morning with Sandrine, so I haven't seen the file yet and didn't have the time, but I can imagine there's nothing in the file or maybe there's very little evidence on all this. So what are we going to do next? Sandrine suggested that we should contact the client to get more information, but now that we know that the money comes from the proceeds of crime, I'm not sure if this makes sense anymore, because what will the client give us? He will give us lies and false documents, probably. So the question for the bank will mainly be to make uh, a declaration of suspicion. But when it does it, there will be a main issue for the bank, because... Uh, the declaration be, will be made months after it should have been made because normally you should it, do it the same day the cash has been deposited or at least within a reasonable time frame. So the authorities will probably notice it and they will dig into this. But we don't have really a solution But because if you decide not to do the declaration of suspicion just to cover your... Uh, the problems you have internally, that may be even more dangerous because if the truth comes out, the fines and sentences will be much higher, I think. So that's a risk I would not take here. Well, let's talk about penalties for one second. What are the penalties for myself or an organisation that breaches professional AML obligations? Well, from a criminal law perspective, the breach of uh, professional obligations is uh, there's no prison sentence here, 
but a fine of up to 5 million euros. And if it comes to legal persons, it can be doubled because legal persons, you cannot put them into jail. So it would be a fine of up to 10 million euros. But uh, the criminal aspect is not everything of it because you also have the administrative fines that can be pronounced and the administrative sanctions. And here there are interesting questions of, we call it non bis in idem. Can you be punished twice for the same fact, once by the CSSF and once by the criminal judge? And what is there a conclusion about that? Can I be hit twice by these two groups? Well, let's say I would say that case law is still ongoing and you find cases, decisions in both directions. Sandrine, from your perspective, do you feel that the penalties are appropriate? And in your experience of Luxembourg, do you see authorities pushing for the maximum? It, it would, I would say, it would depend effectively if, if it was an isolated case uh, or uh, also if it was really a gap in, in the entire process. And we were talking previously about, let's say, the recommendation we would do to the bank when we discover that specific uh, situation with this client. I would say, generally speaking, what we would also clearly address or say to the bank is to have a, a deeper uh, look through the onboarding process uh, itself, making sure that they, they perform a review of the existing uh, policies and procedures, including as well the risk-based approach to, to really ensure that the different level of risk have been properly defined first, that the risk matrix that they have implemented has been properly built, and that the CDD measures applied are consistent with the risk level assigned to the customer, but also consistent with the IML requirements. Because we were talking about one isolated case, but if there is really a gap in the way these processes have been implemented, could be more than one cases. And then it's another discussion, of course, and other type of sanctions uh, that could be considered at least much more uh, sanctions than, than initially foreseen. But Stephanie, surely if I'm a KYC officer, I'm going to claim, you know, I ticked all the boxes. I asked all the right questions. What sort of evidence would you look for to challenge that? Yeah, I think uh, people sometimes forget to ask themselves the question, why am I doing the KYC? And to me, most often, um, there's a lot of regulatory pressure on banks and there's a lot of procedures they have to put in place and things to follow. And, you know, one of the inconveniences of this is that you know, it becomes a tick-the-box exercise where you're not even asking yourself, you know, wh why am I doing this? The other thing is that most often the risk assessment and the risk mapping that Sandrine spoke about is in the end totally decorrelated from the level of due diligence you do. Um, because again, it has become a tick-the-box exercise. So to me, any compliance officer, any KYC manager should say, okay, what are my risks here? What was the risk that I assessed? Is it still the same risk today? What do I need to check? What do I need to question? What do I need to challenge? And what answers do I need to demonstrate that I've been doing whatever I could to cover my risk? It's true that the regulators today, and Jonik's experience is in Luxembourg, mine is, as you said, in front of US authorities, you know, UK authorities, European authorities, they're gonna look at the questions you've asked. They're gonna look at, you know, the decision supports, like what was the decision process? Why did I choose to onboard this client? Or why did I, did I choose not to do it despite the residual risk? And that's what you need to be able to explain because risk zero does not exist. We all take some level of risk, but you need to justify why and why you've taken that risk. 
Sandrine, if I'm working inside of a bank, even though I'm not in the AML team, do I share some of the responsibility of making sure that AML checks occur? It depends what you mean, not in the AML team. So if, if I'm not sitting, I would say, in, in, in the compliance team, meaning the second line of defense, but I'm nevertheless part of the, of the analysts that are onboarding the clients, and then being in the first line of defense, I, I'm part of the team, if I may say, and I should be fully aware of um, the obligations, of the IML obligations the bank has to, to fulfill and, and what are the impact in, in case of, I would say, gap or, or, or breach. So um, I'm part of the, I would say, the process. Grief. So all of us share some responsibility. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, because on top of that, and I think it's it's also the responsibility of of the bank to um, really establish, I would say, the the risk um, appetite and and how far the bank wants to go. The, what are the acceptable and unacceptable risk that the bank is willing to take? The type of clients, the type of I would say um, uh, customers that they want to enter into relationship with, and so on. So. This risk appetite is key and should also be communicated to the entire organization because they should be fully aware of, of the risk that the bank wants to take or doesn't want to take. Now, Jean-Luc, you did say earlier on that actually we're talking about the criminal activity of a client of the bank. Therefore, fundamentally, it's not the bank to become... Uh, uh, the bank is actually a victim, is, is it not? No, the bank is not a victim. The bank should have checked this before, but uh, it's not a co-perpetrator of what the client did. That's what I meant. So therefore, they are not subject to the same sort of criminal investigation as you would occur for their client? No, of course. They are not responsible for the crimes that have been, been uh, committed. Uh, so, Stephanie, I still don't know exactly what had happened, but uh, of course, they are not uh, responsible for what happened uh, before the client was onboarded. And Stephanie, from your perspective, we talked about this potentially being a criminal activity. Would it be very hard to judge sort of cash flows from other EU countries? Um, what do you mean? Is it easy to move cash around? So let's say you're doing an investigation. It's a Luxembourg bank and they are trying to identify whether a criminal transaction has occurred uh, on their watch. But the account, but the money is involved elsewhere. Does that make it particularly hard for you? Yeah, it does make, I mean, if it's cash, by definition, the transaction is harder to follow. It doesn't mean it's not possible. It just takes, um, it just takes more time. But it's also why the bank should have been more diligent, because who says cash says higher risk. And then we go back to Sandrine's risk assessment, where, you know, a client's using a lot of cash is clearly higher risk. And of course, we live in a digital age. Do you think, does that compound your problem in trying to track and trace transactions? In that case, it actually helps because we're going to look at, you know, all the digital transactions, the digital records. And so because we have very um, performant tools, it's going to it's going to help us. I mean, imagine today looking at hundreds, thousands of millions of transactions, you know, between different banks across the globe in a very manual way that would take, you know, years. Um, so the tools are very helpful in this case. And just one other point, Stephanie, which I'd like to raise is that you mentioned earlier on that you're very interested in the why, uh, why KYC was followed or wasn't uh, followed. Do you think there is a, a fundamental disconnect because there's so much performance pressure on objectives 
and compliance officers that therefore, once again, we're looking at inevitable failures in the system. Yeah, it's a very good point. Um, and it's I've been speaking about this for years because in many cases, um, whether it's fraud, bribery and corruption, EML, breach of sanctions, there's this happens because there is a disconnect between the ethical procedures and policies, the ethical speeches that we can hear in every single organization, and then the pressure that is put on people to hit the numbers and you know achieve their performance results. Here, for example, take you know take the two cases we've been speaking about. If I'm the um, manager in the fund, the investment manager, and I've got a lot of pressure to do very good deals or to sign very good contracts. Here's a big contract. You know, I'm being asked to pay a little bribe. I'm just going to do it because what I hear every day is you haven't reached your number. If I'm in a bank and account manager and I've got a client coming to me with hundreds of millions and I haven't hit my numbers and I'm being reminded of this every single day, I'm just going to do um, you know, the compliance procedures very quickly, if not bypass them. And that's where potentially the intent is difficult to establish because I did it under pressure. My intention was potentially not to commit a crime or put the bank in a bad situation. But what I've been told I need to do is hit my numbers. So, Jean-Luc, uh, I get the impression that some people don't call their criminal lawyer until the police are at the door. Yes, indeed. That this happens, unfortunately. The best thing, of course, is to make a prior assessment to see if all everything is compliant and so on. But it also happens that the lawyer only intervenes once the police is there and then uh, there will be a defense that has to be put in, put in place. There are even people calling lawyer late, at a later stage when they have to go to court because during the whole procedure of inquiry and instruction of the case, a lot of things can still be done. So the earlier we come in, the better. So Sandrine, from your AML perspective, we've talked about there's so much pressure uh, on companies and banks in order to do deals. Do you see an impact of that? Um, yeah, definitely, because you know there has been pressure from from the supervisory authorities, pressure as well in terms of the IML expectations that have not ceased to increase, let's say, over the years. So uh, there is really, I would say, a challenge for for professional of the financial sectors, for banks and so on, to have implemented a sound and effective IML framework. And what it means, a sound and effective IML framework, it means to properly define uh, and implement adequate policies and procedures, detailed guidelines to make sure that among all the stakeholders that are part, let's say, of this journey, uh, the roles and responsibilities regarding or between the first line of defense and the second line of defense uh, have been properly uh, defined, communicated, understood, to also ensure that the second line of defense is really focusing on situations presenting higher risk. We all know that time is money, especially when under the pressure of a criminal investigation. And that's why it's never been more important to choose a firm that can provide the complete multidisciplinary expertise. A big thank you to our three experts this afternoon. Thank you very much to Stephanie Lom. Thank you. Thank you to Jean-Luc Putz. Thank you. And thank you to Sandrine Perriot. Thank you. For more information about financial crime and its challenges and solutions, go to arrant.com. Thank you.